The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, what gets you going, people? Is it that first sip of coffee? Or maybe opening those shades and letting the morning sun come through your window? How about the sound of train wheels rattling underfoot? Or the dinging of an airplane when the door is about to close? What lifts your spirits and gets your mind buzzing with energy and excitement? Well, for me, a pair of names will do it. Emily Dickinson and Sylvia Plath. And away we go today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Kind of an unusual introduction. <laughs> Our interns are getting a little creative with <laughs> with uh, what I say here, and I guess it's going to continue, because here we go. Hello, everyone. I am a liar. I'm also Jack Wilson, host of the show, and I am a liar. I said a pair of names would get me going, Emily Dickinson and Sylvia Plath, but really, only one of those names would suffice. So I guess I didn't lie. A pair would, well, the pair, the pair of those two names threatens to propel me into the ether. It's not a cup of coffee I'm drinking here. It's a barrel of coffee. Drink it down and and launch and never be heard from again. Where's Jack? Well, he's in orbit somewhere, spinning around in circles, trying to calm down. Okay, so let's just go straight to cheesecake, as my toddler once said, telling me his plans for after his nap. I'm going to take a nap, and then I'll go straight to cheesecake. Our cheesecake today is going to be Emily Dickinson. And then we'll hear from Carl Rollison, who has a new book about Sylvia Plath available. He'll tell us all about that book and more. Emily Dickinson, where are we with her? Up to poem 240. Well, the last time we had a pretty somber affair. The dead, indolent housewife in the house that was starting to fade or deteriorate, I guess. And we were in the shoes of someone observing the body to the extent that we dared or cared to do so. Today we have one of Emily's genius poems. This is the mind of a genius giving us in eight lines a kind of philosophical argument, but one that goes off in different directions or, or comes in from different directions, kind of. It's not, it's not eight neat lines like eight lines of different colors lined up like crayons in a box. The colors here are popping and smashing all over, like exploding fireworks. So let's hear, this time let's do it all at once, all eight lines in a row, and then we will break it down. 240. Bound to trouble and lives will bear it. Circumscription enables woe. Still to anticipate were no limit who were sufficient to misery. Stated the ages to a cipher, and it will ache contented on Sing at its pain as any workman, notching the fall of the even sun. Okay, that's it. A lot of dashes here. All the lines end with a dash, except the fourth line, which is a question mark. 
Half of the eight lines have dashes right in the middle. Very Dickinson. Okay. Let's also, what's a little bit unusual here is just how convoluted the grammar is. We start with an archaic version of a word, but let's start at the beginning. Bound to trouble and lives will bear it. Bound is used as a verb, and this is obsolete. According to the dictionary, we would say bind to trouble. Lives can bear a trouble is the point. A trouble when it's been bound or given some constraints. This line gives us the key to the whole poem. The point that Emily Dickinson is making here is that suffering is endurable when we know its limits, when we know that it will have phases or some kind of time limit, or we know that things will get better eventually. When that happens, we endure pain like a workman who works all day but knows that when night falls, he gets to go home. If you don't have that, if it's pain with no obvious end in sight, it's unendurable. We have woe. We have misery. But without limits or circumscriptions, we're not up to the task of bearing it. We might suspect here that Emily Dickinson herself felt a pain that might never go away. Mightn't we? Mightn't we suspect that? That she knew the difference between pain that you could get over and live through and pain that seemed to be timeless, infinite, ceaseless, with no obvious boundaries. Where you're in it, it might never end. It might just get worse. That's the implication we have, that she knew this. She felt it. She commemorated it, delineated it, set it down in words for herself and for the rest of us. Let's go through the rest of the poem. Bound to trouble and lives will bear it. Circumscription enables woe. Still to anticipate were no limit who were sufficient to misery. So there we go. What's endurable is woe when it has some kind of circle around it. Circumscribed. Penned in. Fenced off. Or What's endurable is trouble when it's bound. But if you're just anticipating more and more of the same with no limit, then we are not sufficient. No one is sufficient to that kind of task. No one has the power to do it. Not sufficient to misery, she says. Next line. State at the ages to a cipher. An earlier version of the poem referred to algebra. That gives us a, a key to understanding this line. State at the ages. Quantify it. Say how many ages it will have. Or put it down in a cipher. Like a code. Codify it. Give it a number. Define it somehow. Pin it down. Next line. And it will ache contented on. Right? The pain won't end. But it will be endurable. Contented in a way, contented by the definition, by the limits that you've put around it. Sing at its pain as any workman, notching the fall of the even sun. Pain can be something that we sing at. We work through it like some laborer who's working all day, but knows that when the sun goes down and even or evening begins, then the work is over. That's what makes it endurable. So what is misery? How does it affect us? It's like a workman. It's difficult. There's no question. This isn't play. It's hard work. 
but there is a difference. It's endurable. We sing through it if and only if we have that end point in sight. If we know that we're working a shift, we're not endlessly toiling away, working until the end of time or, I guess, death. Or you might say, knowing that it's not going to expand forever. That's another kind of limit. That it's not going to just get worse and worse and worse. Or that the, the feeling is not going to be a mystery. Misery cannot be a mystery, one might say. If it is, we're goners. We can't endure it. We can only endure it when the pain and the misery are sized up, measured, somehow compartmentalized. Compartmentalized. Emphasis on the mental in that word. So that's 240. We'll talk about someone who knew the depths of misery, one suspects, and who seems to have had moments where the circumscription was possible and moments where it did not seem that way. But actually, this is not that story, not yet. That was all to come later in Sylvia Plath's life. We are instead talking about Sylvia Plath in her earliest years now, the years before we knew what happened to her with Ted Hughes and with her tragic ending. And with her poetry, too, for that matter. Our guest, Carl Rollison, is going to tell us what she was like in those years, what we can take from it, and how we know what she was like. Carl Rollison, after this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me once again is Carl Rollison, professor of journalism at Baruch College, the City University of New York. Professor Rollison has published more than 40 books, including biographies of Lillian Hellman, Martha Gellhorn, Norman Mailer, Rebecca West, Susan Sontag, and Marilyn Monroe. He was here last time to discuss his two-volume biography of the life of William Faulkner, and he's here today to discuss Sylvia Plath, Day by Day, Volume 1. Carl Rollison, welcome back to the History of Literature. I'm happy to be here. So let's start by discussing your previous books about Sylvia Plath. This isn't the first book that you've done about her. We have The Last Days of Sylvia Plath and American Isis, The Life and Works of Sylvia Plath. What were those books about? Well, the first one, American Isis, uh, came about in part because I was thinking about the 50th anniversary of her death 
and I had been teaching her for many years, going back to the 1970s. And it struck me, reading the other Plath biographies, uh, which were quite stimulating, that there was still room for another book, particularly about her own sense of herself as almost, uh, the reason the book is called American Isis, a kind of mythological figure that she thought of herself in really uh, quite grandiose terms from a very young age. So I was looking at that, and I was trying to uh, situate, in a sense, both her life and death in the context of what happens with mythological figures like Isis and Osiris and so on. So that became sort of a template for the book, the mythological class, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then I got contacted by a, a literary agent who was wanted to do a short biography about 20,000 words of Plath. And so that was a challenge. And I started to write it and, and almost immediately realized <laughs> I couldn't do it. <laughs> I have done short biographies. It's not that I'm incapable of it. But for some reason, once I began working on her, I realized I just, I, I, that's for somebody else. And I got keenly interested in uh the last days, partly because new archival material had, had come in. Particularly, there was a woman, Harriet Rosenstein, who had worked on a biography of Platt for several years and then was so intimidated by the estate that she just gave it up. But in the course of it, she had interviewed so many interesting people, and she had kept this archive to herself for 50 years. And then she decided to sell it. A court case was involved, and eventually this material was released, both to Smith College and then Emory University bought part of it, too. So I thought, wow, I've got to look at all this stuff. And so I got very interested in, in a sense, the circumstances of Plath's last days, how it is. People look at her and say, oh, she was suicidal. Well, she wasn't, she wasn't. That is, the reason someone takes his or her own life often is situational. And that's what The Last Days of Sylvia Plath is about, to suggest that you don't essentialize her. You don't just say, oh, well, she was she was always going to commit suicide. But to look very meticulously at the circumstances, the location, where she was, and what kind of contact she had, and, and the things that she had grown up being used to that were no longer available to her. So that's how I really became interested in doing that second book. Mm. Okay. Well, what did you feel uh, still needed to be said? Or, or maybe you could just talk about the approach that you take, because Sylvia Plath Day by Day seems like a quite a different kind of book from the ones that you wrote yeah. before. Yes. Some years ago, back around 2015, in, in fact, I was working on a book called Marilyn Monroe Day by Day, and the impulse for that book, like the impulse for Sylvia Platt Day by Day, had to do with a certain frustration uh, that I encountered as a biographer. No matter what approach you take in a biography, you're going to have to leave things out mm. uh, because you're constructing a story, a narrative, and a certain interpretation of a person's life. And as a result, there are things that are very important about that person that don't get as much attention or maybe no attention at all in a particular narrative. That's why we have several biographies of Sylvia Plath or Napoleon or Abraham Lincoln. It's because things change, new material becomes available. And I wanted that sense of what it was like to live day by day. And in order to do a day by day book, you can't write narrative. 
you're writing essentially a diary. You know, you're mm. and in Platt's case, I'm trying to find out what happened on every single day of her life. I did this with Faulkner too, in a book called William Faulkner Day by Day. But with Plath, it's going to be two volumes. The first volume having been published, and the second one will come out this spring. She herself. And not every writer does this, but she herself, starting at the age of 11, going on 12, she began keeping diaries, daily accounts of her own life. And even the longest biography of Sylvia Plath, there's one that's close to a thousand pages by Heather Clark, can't put everything in. Yeah. And so I thought, wow, you know, this would be a, an incredible reference tool, especially since her earliest diaries have not been published. They're unpublished, uh, but I had access to them. And so this meant that I could go back to, and her mother left uh, uh, accounts of, you know, uh, Plath as a baby, even her first words. I thought, well, this is incredible. Almost every day of her life can be documented. Right. Well, I can see a couple of advantages about this approach, and I'll throw in a third. A couple of them come right out of the things that we were talking about when we talked about your earlier books about Sylvia Plath. One is that the the struggle we have when we're interpreting something from the past is to view it with hindsight and to see everything as predestined and, oh, this was leading up to that. And, That's but right. if you're looking at it day by day, she doesn't have that benefit. You know, she doesn't have, she doesn't know what's going to happen to her. And so you're you're immersed in a world from the viewpoint of looking forward instead of looking back. That's exactly right. And in fact, what I decided to do was keep all the entries in present tense. Mm. So that as you mm -hmm. read the entry, you really are there with her. And, and in a sense, although you know how the story ends, the book creates this idea of being in the present. What was it like to be in the present as yeah. Sylvia Platt? Right. And then the second thing I was going to mention is that, as you say, she had this this view of herself. I often think that you know, it's a little bit daunting for a critic of Sylvia Plath to know that she herself was so brilliant and had such a, a self-awareness of poetry and, and herself and and her just her general intelligence. And you could see, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear about how early that started and, and when you could kind of see that form. The, the book that uh, volume one of Day by Day is her, the first 23 years of her life. And it, it's fascinating to hear, is this something that was in her early 20s or her teens or even earlier, that she was kind of recognizing that there was something different about her? Yes, that's right. I think a lot of it has to do with her reading. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. She was a, just an avid reader as a child. And one of the interesting things that I didn't really, until I read through all the childhood diaries, realize is how much she read uh, of history and biography as mm. it was written for children. Mm. So she would be reading things, for instance, about medieval Krakow, Poland. Mm. You know, slavery in the ancient world was one of the books that she was reading. She was reading a book about a young girl who kept diaries. In other words, literature became a world unto itself that she, from a very early age, thought she could be part of. Yeah. At the same time, what you see in the diaries is that she's like any young girl growing up. 
am I going to get married? She uses the language of the time. I don't want to be a career girl. You know, I want to have a, a husband and a family. But if I have a husband and family, am I going to be able to be a writer? She has all these kinds of conflicts and tensions going on and all kinds of choices that she has to make. Right. Now, some diaries are famous for being kind of you know, just the facts. And today I woke up, had breakfast, had lunch, you yeah. know, quit the Beatles, went to bed. <laughs> it's one, I think George Harrison had something like that. But is she and, and others could be sort of sketches or creative ideas and things, especially someone who wants to be a writer might be writing drafts of short stories. And I think Kafka's diaries are kind of like that. Where is she on that spectrum? Is she Is she documenting her life? Is she you know, writing drafts of poems and so on? Or is it hopes and dreams or boyfriends or what's going on inside these pages? Yeah, that's another thing that's interesting about her. Sometimes some of my entries are very short. They mm -hmm. are, you know, the factual recording of even what she ate. Mm -hmm. uh, her mother was very concerned about her weight. So from camp, she's listing, it seems like every meal she ever ate. <laughs> on the other hand, she's she's often in the same entries or in different entries commenting on uh, campers and their personalities and what they're like and how she reacts to them and camp shows that she's a part of. She imitates Frank Sinatra, but evidently she doesn't think her voice is good enough. So she has someone else sing and she lip syncs to this person imitating Frank Sinatra <laughs> in a camp show, you know, and then there are things that are of the time, you know, which you, you sort of really cringe in a way. Up through the 1940s, high schools did what they called minstrel shows. Mm. Camps did these minstrel shows. Yeah. And, you know, there'd be talk about pickaninnies and things like that. And Plath would say these things uh, without reflecting on them. I got very interested in this. One of the things that a reader in Day by Day will see is I wanted to, since she mentioned the book, for instance, she was reading a history textbook, which was called, and the title is interesting, The Rise of Our Free Nation. Uh, and immediately I began to look, since she was in these minstrel shows, what does it say about slavery? Mm. And slavery is mentioned in the textbook, but no sense of the horror, the evil of it, really. Uh, in other words, the language is so anodyne that a young girl or a young person reading such a textbook, unless the teacher went out of his or her way to to talk about what it meant to be a slave, uh, this would kind of pass you by. Mm. And of course, this has an enormous impact, even on someone with as sensitive an imagination as Sylvia Plath, when at an impressionable age, here she is reading about uh, medieval Krakow, and yet she's not really getting a visceral sense of your own country's history is like. Right. And this was in Massachusetts where she was growing up, correct? That's right. Yes, that's right. Not far from Boston. Yeah. yeah. Right. So does she talk about her parents? What kind of relationship do we see there? Well, that's fascinating, too. There's lots of talk about her mother. Her father dies when she's young, when she's only eight years old. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really is striking about the first volume of Sylvia Plath Day by Day is how little discussion there is of her father. Mm -hmm. In other words, he dies, 
that obviously has an enormous impact. But she is a very happy child, and she very rarely talks about her father. What's interesting is it's only when she gets into her early to mid-20s that she begins to reflect on what the impact of her father's death at her early age had on her in suspension for many years. You don't get any sense of, say, teachers or uh, class parents or family or Plath herself thinking of herself as somehow a uh, problem child or a child that has psychological problems. There's very, very little of that in the diary. The reader's going to learn about that much, much more in volume two, and she begins to reevaluate her childhood and what was going on as a child. But she is, as a child, in the moment, in the present, she is exuberant. Yeah. Wow. Uh, she's uh, she's fun to be with. She's not morose. She sometimes loses her temper. Sometimes she's thin skin. But there's this what you get of the childhood does not compute with what some people think. Oh, this was a person. You know, we talked about this already. Destined to do this, that, or the other thing. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Wow, I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have thought that if she wasn't discussing it, you would at least see that she was kind of vaguely unhappy or or felt a kind of absence just because of how important that became later in her life in her poetry. It's it's almost central, the absence of the father and the the weight that's right. that, that yeah, had yeah. on her. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's why I, I the more I worked on on Sylvia Plath, the what became volume one, I thought readers are really going to be surprised by this. Plath's mother, you'll you'll get some sense of this in volume two. Plath's mother felt, and I came across this too when I was uh, working on Marilyn Monroe. People said about Monroe, and Plath's mother said about Plath. She only, that is her daughter, only began to really reevaluate her society when she, uh, her uh, childhood, when she became interested in psychoanalysis and psychology and Mm. abnormal psychology. When she was getting into late adolescence in her early 20s, she was kind of a manic depressive and that she began to be interested in why am I like that? Mm. And that's when she began to think of her childhood in a different way. Right. Now, did others recognize her, and was she getting her brilliance and her, I think she believed she was destined for greatness. Were others confirming that with, I mean, was she winning prizes, and was she sort of the star of the class and so on, or or do we not see that from the others around her? She was a huge prize winner. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her mother certainly treated her as a, a precocious child who should be challenged and given, you know, books to read and and so on. And she had a teacher, Wilbury Crockett, who was famous, not only because of Sylvia Platt, but generations of students testified to his charismatic ability to stimulate them and to challenge them. And in fact, he, she kept in touch with him virtually her whole life. So she had these people around her, not only in her family, but at school, and she had classmates also who recognized that there was, you know, something special about Sylvia Plath. She definitely had that kind of support. She wasn't one of these writers who came from a family who, in any sense, denigrated or discouraged Mm. uh, writing, that sort of thing, not at all. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more with Carl Rollison. Thank you. 
Okay, we are back. So, Professor Rollison, I was wondering if you could read a favorite entry or two to us and, and kind of tell us if those are uh, exemplary for what we can expect or why you like those the best. Sure. Uh, I'll just read two. They give you kind of a flavor of her at different ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, when she's 12. It's October 28th, 1944. She's just a little over 12 years old. She mentions a, well, I'll read the entry. It's uh, She mentions Ruth Geisel, who's a childhood playmate. With Ruth Geisel gathers birch tree seeds in backyard, a party at Betsy Powley's, and then I'm quoting Plath. We each had a number and were blindfolded. This is obviously Halloween. We each had a number and were blindfolded and went down the cellar one by one. First, we shook hands with Frankenstein, in parentheses, she puts, a glove filled with wet sand. Felt his brains, then in parentheses, cold, gooey macaroni. And felt his innards, in parentheses, she puts, raw liver. Bobbing for apples, everyone a prize winner. So that's the entry for October 28th, 1944. Right. There's another, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's quite long. Some some of the uh, entries are very long, and they are meditations on where she is in her life and so on. This is from page 147, and it goes on to page 148, November 13th, 1949. She's saying, uh, I'm quoting her here, As of today, I have decided to keep a diary again. Just a place where I can write my thoughts and opinions when I have a moment. Somehow, I have to keep and hold the rapture of being 17. Every day is so precious, I feel infinitely sad at the thought of all this time melting farther and farther away from me as I grow older. Wow. Very poetic. That's just the beginning of it. It's a much longer passage in the book, but I mean, that gives you a, a sense of the shifting tones and the way she's she's using the diaries for different purposes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they are kind of writing exercises. Sometimes they're just, oh, she gets mad at her brother Warren because her brother Warren shows her diary to a boyfriend of his who Plath was interested in, but then was miffed at. Mm. She writes in her diary about how miff she is at this boy, and then her brother Warren shows the boy the, this diary. <laughs> <laughs> and last later, comment in a diary is, when you do that sort of thing, and you read somebody else's diary, that's what you get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, that's quite an intrusion uh, on her privacy, but I guess that's what siblings do to one another. Uh, uh, sometimes, yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Now, what I love about the passages that you read is that they really, you know, if you love Sylvia Plath's poetry, you really see kind of the grist for the mill. You know, you see all of the things that are going into this mind and all of the experiences that this person is having and how those things kind of can be drawn upon later to be details or metaphors or something, a a thought or something that can go into the poems. I'm guessing that in your, just by the nature of this book, you'd be leaving that for 
later critics to kind of use the book in order to sort of say, well, isn't this interesting? We see this and it, it comes later in the poem. You don't talk about the poetry, do you? No, not specifically. That's right. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I just got an email from a teacher at a girl's school in South Africa, and she she was saying how she, she thought my book was wonderful because she could use it with her students and she could, you know, pick certain days, certain months, certain years, and so on. And then uh, because my book is excerpts, Sylvia Plath Day by Day is no excuse for not reading her published journals, which mm. are, you know, much longer. I'm just doing excerpts mm-hmm. from her diaries, some unpublished and some published. But what it allows, a say, a teacher of students to do is, is is to get them started. Look at this. Here's what she's writing here. Now, you know, go do your own investigation. Mm. Uh, in a sense, write your own biography. They're able to do that using the book. Yeah. Now, when you mentioned that, that the entry was from 1944, of course, that that brings up the idea of World War II. Do you see yeah. historical events? I guess this would be through the Depression, World War II, uh, yep. into the start of the Cold War and the McCarthy era. Did those affect her circumstances at all, and, or did they affect her her view of the world? Was she commenting on anything that was happening like that? She was commenting on all of it. Mm. Uh, it's really interesting in the day. She's very conscious of the war. Yeah. She's very conscious of her German and Austrian parentage. Oh, right, right. Uh, this gets into her early short stories, but it's also in these diaries. She has an entry, for instance, the day that FDR died. You know, what a tremendous blow this was and the impact of this. Mm. She describes VJ Day, Victory Over Japan Day, and so on. So you get that historical dimension, too. She's a kid who reads the newspaper. She listens to the radio. You learn about all her favorite television programs. I first became aware of this in doing my first biography, American Isis, but then I found it even more so in her childhood diaries. You know, one of her favorites is Jack Benny. Mm. Jack Benny on the radio. (laughs) And that's important because anyone who wants to really understand the humor of Sylvia Plath, and there is humor, there isn't all sadness and tragedy at all. There's humor in the bell jar. People often think of that as a sad novel. There's a lot of humor in that, a a kind of biting, sarcastic humor. Mm -hmm. And part of where Plath gets that is from Jack Benny. People, depending on how old you are, may may remember Jack Benny on television. I wasn't old enough, uh, really, to listen to him on radio, but the radio recordings are available, and I've listened to all these recordings, knowing that Plath listened to these things. And the fascinating thing about Jack Benny is how acerbic his radio show was, yeah. how much he was himself, because you know his parsimony, his cheapness, etc., there were jokes about that. There were jokes about his sidekick, Don, as being too fat and so on. I mean, there were things that now would be considered politically incorrect. And think about Plath, she could be very tough, almost savage in her humor. And people don't associate that with popular culture figures. But it's there. It's it's in programs like Jack Benny and also Burns and Allen. Yeah. Uh, he was very fond of those shows, and I can see how they really appeal to, as well as shaping her sensibility. Right. And Jack Benny, I always associate, uh, you know, the self-deprecation 
and kind of the dry humor of him yeah. when he's he's talking about himself, his timing, and I could see that. I never would have guessed that, but I can kind of see that with Plath, that that would be a kind of source of humor for her or influential on the kind of humor that she had later in life. That's right, yeah. The other, the other big program on radio that she, she was enamored with as a very young girl was Superman. Mm. I mean, Superman was huge. And again, <laughs> I talk about this in American ISIS, but now in Sylvia Platt Day, but I, you know, you, you can, if you want to, uh, one of the things I have is links in my book. You can go right to the program that she was listening to. So mm. you know exactly what her, in a sense, her experience of that program was rather than just having some biographer describe it to you. Wow. And this is, I mean, just to remind people of how young she was when you were talking about FDR, and you know, this would be when she was about 12 or 13. Yeah, is, 12, yeah. 13 years old. Yeah, yeah, 1945, 13 years old. And and she's listening to him, you know. And, and she has soldiers who come to school assemblies and talk about the war. She has relatives involved with the war. She has an uncle who comes over with a friend of his who shows her all the, in a sense, the booty, the German stuff, you know, the, the uniforms and things, objects that he's brought back with him from the war. So it was very tangible for her, the idea of the war. It was not something somewhere far off. Right. Did she have a lot of friends or any particularly close confidants? Would you say that she had a best friend? Yeah, that was Betsy Powley. She's mentioned mm. in that one diary entry. She did all sorts of things with Betsy. They loved to build little huts in the woods and so on, uh, and outdoor rooms, so to speak, and go skating and sliding. Uh, she talks a lot about what she calls ice sliding. And she was a very sociable girl. Uh, lots of parties, lots of sleepovers, That although they didn't call them sleepovers then. But she did that uh, a lot of that kind of visiting. The other thing that's interesting about her is that from most of her early years, she grew up in Wellesley. And originally her mother thought, well, her daughter, because her mother does not have a lot of money, that Plath would go to Wellesley College because they had a town scholarship. And so she figured her daughter could go free. But that's a whole other story. But Platt got very interested in Smith. But one of the interesting things about Wellesley is it was basically the kids that she went to school with in public school came from very well-off families. And she's aware of that. She talks a bit about that in her diaries, about they, how they have more than she does. Mm. I mean, in order to go to Smith, for example, she spends the summer before she goes to Smith her first year at Smith, she works very hard, manual physical labor on a farm. She has a scholarship, but she wants, you know, some spending money uh, while she's there. And she knows her mother is on a very limited budget. She's a single parent. And so she's got to make up the difference herself. Money, in fact, in both volumes, people will see day by day, was always a major concern for Sylvia Plath how she was going to earn enough. And she was determined to earn enough as a writer. And her mother was very, very worried about that. Her mother thought it would be a lot safer if Sylvia simply became a teacher. And Sylvia did try teaching, but it took up too much time mm. of her creative time. And she decided she didn't want to be a teacher and she didn't want to be a secretary or be anything like that except a writer. And what happens, of course, in volume two is she meets Ted Hughes, and Ted Hughes says, 
you're absolutely right. You know, you were born to write, not to teach or anything else. And that changes her life. I'm a little surprised that her mother, given the era that her mother wasn't saying you should find a good husband with uh, earning capabilities, especially given her own financial circumstances. Were they progressive in this sense? Were they ahead of their era a little bit in thinking that that Sylvia would need to earn her own income, or, or were they just being realistic? At one point, Sylvia was dating a neighbor boy who was going to become a doctor. Mm. And I think Sylvia's mother would have been overjoyed if Sylvia had married Dick Norton. He was the one who was going to be a doctor. <laughs> because she could write, yeah. but also be married to a doctor. Mm-hmm. And when Ted Hughes came along, it's not that uh, Aurelia Plath, her mother, in, in any sense, disliked Ted Hughes. She was this almost as charmed by him as, as Sylvia herself was. But she worried this guy seemed to have no no income. Yeah, right. Another poet. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, two poets together? That sounds like a recipe for starvation. Uh, and in volume two, you learn how they, they did learn to survive on their, their writing. It's really quite a remarkable story. But her mother was conventional in many ways, but her mother had grown up also with some aspirations to be a writer. Mm. And she tamped all those down when she married an older man and had children and did everything for the marriage and for her children. Sylvia says in, in a letter to her brother at one point, you know, our mother would virtually kill herself as long as she knew it would help us. Mm. Her mother was incredibly self-sacrificing in that sense. But Sylvia never felt that her mother truly fully understood what it meant to be an independent writer. I think there were some resentments there against her mother for, if not quite ever saying so, I think she felt her mother thought it would be okay to settle for a little less, Mm -hmm. for a little more security. And so the greatness of Sylvia Plath's story is her courage, tremendous courage, and having that faith in her own, in a sense, greatness as a writer. Yeah. It's a common enough story. I mean, you could see from her, her mother's perspective, that was what she herself had done. And, and she right. was probably worried. Um, I think parents, when they start to think, well, I'm not going to be around forever. And how is this person going to to manage the teacher's salary or the secretary's salary or something is probably kind of a comfort to the parent. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. But the world is lucky that Sylvia had the courage of her own convictions. Do we see any struggles in this volume? Was she starting to have struggles with mental illness at these ages? We're just beginning to see, as she enters Smith, some mental struggles. Mm -hmm. She has a roommate, in fact, who quits after a year at Smith because the pressure was too much. Mm. One of the things that, especially the Plath's latest biographer, Heather Clark, says quite rightly, is you've got to view Plath in context. And if you look at Smith College in the 1950s when Plath attended, there were a lot of girls who dropped out, who tried to commit suicide, who found the pressures of being a young woman and a college student and looking for a husband and the, dealing with the curriculum a little bit too much. Mm. And it's in fact Sylvia who buoys up her roommate saying, 
who, who she thinks is suicidal, who says, hang in there. Uh, the next day is likely to be better. Mm. And she becomes a source of support for her. So you do begin to see that. You do, you do begin to see the pressures mounting. Plus, Plath was, needless to say, a very ambitious person. And if you're an ambitious person, and I think I identify with this, nothing is ever enough. One biography of Plath is not enough. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't just stop and say, oh, well, I've done it. What happens with the ambitious person is you've done it, and you say, well, what's next? Yeah. And there's always something higher. Well, if there is something higher, better, greater, um, superior to what you've already done, you're never going to be contented. Yeah. And for the women of this era in particular, I mean, one of the things that that I think changed by the time I went to college is that the pressure to get married and have children, I'm sure it was still there, but it wasn't so compressed. Right. It was something that people could wait until they were 30 or 32 or 36, yeah. you know, and yeah. and that, so if they wanted to have a career or become a, a, a great writer, you know, they, they would have a little time to breathe. But for Plath, it seems like, you know, all of that was immediate and and pulling her in different directions right from the start. Even throughout her 20s, it would be, well, are you going to be a writer? Or are you going to be a mother? How are you going to manage to do both? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct about that. She did not feel there was any time to waste. Mm -hmm. And most women of her age at Smith College in, say, 1952, felt that I've only got a few years left to get married and get settled down. If I hit 30 and I'm not married, I'm in trouble. Mm. And I think you're right. A later generation of women didn't feel quite that sense of urgency. Yeah. I think it really changes right after Plath's death in 63 when Betty Friedan publishes The Feminine Mystique. Mm. Yeah. And says, you know, there's a whole myth there that you as a woman have to encounter and realize that, you know, you on one hand, you're put on a pedestal. On the other hand, you're told, uh, you better get with it. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I always come away from these biographies sort of wishing that Plath had been born 10 or 20 years later for her mm -hmm. own sake, because I think that would have been so different for her. But on the other hand, just as someone who's interested in reading about a life, there is something about the 30s and 40s and 50s that seems so... I don't know, incongruous for Plath, you know, that she's ahead of her time in that way. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think if she were coming of age in the 60s and 70s, her story would probably be a little more familiar to us. It, it's so striking to read about a person who was doing what she was doing in those really fascinating decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel the same way about Marilyn Monroe. If she had been born mm, a little bit later, yeah. her life would have turned out differently. Right, right. It's, it's what Gloria Steinem said about Monroe, and I think it's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially if there had been a Marilyn Monroe to pave the way for the later Marilyn yeah. Monroe. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, it's a very good point. <laughs> right. So did you end up thinking that Sylvia Plath was the same person that you believed that she was before you started working on the book? I think I had a, a gotten a, a fuller sense of her by doing the day-by-day -day book. Mm -hmm. I think that, that um, 
the richness of her personality and the choices she had to make and that just looking at her life day by day gave me a stronger sense of who she is. And you won't believe this. I've written yet another book on Sylvia Plath. It's called The Making of Sylvia Plath. Because as I was reading day by day, I realized that her the the way she was shaped intellectually, the movies she watched and the books she read, there was still more to say about that. So after the second volume of the day by day book, there's going to be a book called The Making of Sylvia Plath. Right. I think I need a day by day of Carl Rollison. <laughs> the serial biographer. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. So where does volume one end? Where does that take us to in Plath's life? And what? where does volume two pick up? She's decided that one way or another, she's going to go abroad. At one point, she even considers a program, a U.S. program, that would put her as a teacher in Morocco. Uh, not so much because of the teaching, but, but because of the man who's head of the program and because of the experience of going abroad. Mm. And then she makes the decision that she doesn't want to, even though she applies to some American graduate schools, she looks upon American graduate schools as too factory-like, too machine-made, too academic. And she gets very interested through some teachers at Smith in studying either at Cambridge or Oxford, which give the students a lot more latitude. It's essentially a huge uh, reading course that they take, and then there are examinations at the end of the year. So at the end of volume one, she said, I'm applying for a Fulbright, but even if I don't get a Fulbright, somehow, some way, I'm going to get to England. Mm. Uh, and then she wins the Fulbright, and the book ends. Mm. Wow. And then volume two, I guess it won't be too long before we meet Ted Hughes and that whole second right. chapter of her life uh, opens up. Yeah. It's interesting, though. In volume two, it begins with her relationships with other men, hmm. particularly a shipboard romance on, on the way to England. Uh, and uh, it, it's there, there's a good several months, a year really, before she meets Ted Hughes, where she's trying out various things with various men, uh, Englishmen, and f being somewhat dissatisfied, belonging to a drama group. It's it's very interesting, you know, the year before she gets committed to uh, Ted Hughes. Mm. Oh, last question, something I forgot. Is there, do we yeah. see any of her famous poems in the in the first 23 years of her life? We do get snippets of poetry that she's writing. Mm -hmm. We get one poem in particular called Wild Strawberries. It's fascinating. She writes in 1950 because it's about her summer working as a farm worker and about picking strawberries and how there's a discussion of nuclear war. It's fascinating. And Ted Hughes put it in collected poems as part of her juvenilia, mm -hmm. uh, which I think was a mistake. I don't think he should have divided the book that way, but that, that's another whole discussion. But you do get, toward the very end of Day by Day, some sense of a writing of poetry that's going to turn her into you know, a serious, important writer. Was she happy with her poetry at this point, or was she, did she think she was capable of something better? She thought she was, she always thought she was capable of something better. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she, uh, one of the things we haven't talked about is the fact that she was quite an artist. Mm. Uh, all of her childhood diaries are full of illustrations. And she was still, uh, even when married to Ted Hughes, she was still drawing and painting. She's on the verge of considering several possibilities. And it's too early yet by the end of volume one, in a sense, for any disappointment to set in. She's still winning prizes. She's being published in Mademoiselle and Seventeen magazine. She's on a trajectory to greatness, and she hasn't suffered any real defeat as a writer yet. Mm. Uh, that will come in the second volume when she does have self-doubts uh, and begins to say, well, this is all very well, this, these early publications, but they don't really count. Mm. Well, now I am eager to read both Volume 1 and Volume 2. The book we're talking about today is Sylvia Plath, Day by Day, Volume 1, 1932 to 1955. Carl Rollison, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Carl Rollison for joining me. And if you're thinking, man, oh man, it's too bad that there was so much poetry by women on this show today because that's going to make it difficult to listen on Thursday. We'll be feeling that absence. Well, guess what? I thought about you. I had you in mind, dear listener. I was keeping your disappointment foremost in my thoughts, and so we won't try to quit cold turkey. We'll be looking at another woman who wrote poetry, Hilda Doolittle, a.k.a. H.D., with the help of that poet's biographer. I kind of knew H.D. as Ezra Pound's friend, a fellow imagist, one of the key figures of modernism, and I'd read a smattering of her poetry, but I had no idea, really, just what a fascinating person she was. Great poet and a very compelling life story. We will have all of that next time. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.